How can you do all that needs done in life and still pursue your desire to learn French or the guitar or grow a plant or make art? You can't put a fiddle under your pillow and wake up playing it, though how cool would that be? But one thing we can do, no matter how chaotic and overwhelming life can be, is know that every tiny small motion in the direction of those endeavors really do matter. And not only that, they add up over time with great momentum. Join me, Annie Fane Barillon, as I interview painters and gardeners, designers and musicians, photographers and cooks, creative livers of any kind, who have somehow, in the middle of it all, continued on their creative paths, no matter what. This is Fane House Radio, and I'm so glad you're here. Well, my name is Riley Bogus, and... The main creative endeavors of my life have been one, welding and blacksmithing. That's what I did to make a living for 18 years of my life. But at the same time, I, I was embarking on a musical career. I, at no time did I ever intend for it to be my career. I intended it to be a sometimes uh, side hustle thing where you earned a little extra money, but had a whole lot of fun. The money was never the thing, and it basically still isn't, even though it's my main source of employment now. And currently, my main endeavor is the claw hammer banjo, uh, and and specifically from the mountains of North Carolina. I, I play a northern Blue Ridge Mountain style of claw hammer banjo that comes from Surrey County. That's the basis for all things banjo that I do. It, everything, all the other things that I play stem from that style. But, you know, Allegheny County, Wilkes County, Ashe County, Surrey County, Stokes County, uh, and even Grayson County, Virginia, Grayson and Carroll County, Virginia, are some of the places where, where most of the music that influenced me come from. So those have been my main endeavors. I was a welder and blacksmith for a long time, and at the same time, I was playing old-time music, old-time guitar, old-time fiddle, and old-time banjo. And singing. And doing a little bit of singing along the way. Would you add uh, banjo making, gardening, and surf fishing to the list? Well, surf fishing was always a hobby. That, that, was, an, that was an endeavor of, of total fun. Did have a really good time doing that. But, you know, as a creative person, one of the things that we enjoyed doing was making lures, making our own lures to catch things in the ocean. Because it's a whole different idea of making lures to catch things in the ocean than than catching things and you know than tying flies and catching things in a creek or a river or a pond. You know that's a big old pond out there, the Atlantic Ocean. So things don't tend to need to be as quite as detailed for <laughs> for catching fish. So it was fun figuring out what you could get by with and still catch fish. You know. Yeah, banjo making is certainly one of the things that uh, that I got into. And I got into it because a fella gave me two walnut 4x4s, two walnut and one cherry 4x4. And uh, he worked for the place over here at the other side of town that grinds up all the pallets and all the brush that falls in, in the city, you know, on the streets. And they come and get it all up in, in those piles, and they take it over to this grinding place where they turn it all into mulch. Well, he there was this pallet skid or this machinery pallet that had the skids on the bottom of it that were made from walnut and cherry four befores. And he pulled them off and he gave them to me. And I figured, well, what have I got to lose? 
I just said, well, you know, it's free, free wood that was going to be ground into mulch anyway. So if I mess it up, I haven't lost anything really. And it turns out that I was okay at building a banjo net. But I had ordered a banjo from Kevin Enoch, who's an outstanding banjo maker and an incredible inlay artist. And at the time, I started building this thing. And I said, well, you know, I'm having some trouble with the neck warping. I don't know what to do. So I, I said, well, I know what I'll do. I'll call Kevin. Kevin and I are friends. He'll, he'll help me out here. And sure enough, he was, a, he was a sweetheart. I called him and said, you know, I'm, I'm carving this banjo neck, Kevin. And I said, it's warping. So do you ever have any trouble with that? And he said, what, wood warping? No. <laughs> he said, here, I'll tell you what to do. So he said, let me send you one of my laminated carbon fiber rods to use as a truss rod. He said, epoxy it in. He said, and then it'll be fine. And that was exactly what I needed to do. I epoxied it in. The neck never warped anymore. I flattened everything out and made my first banjo neck for a serious banjo. How many banjos do you figure you make in a year? Well, it varies, Annie Fain. It varies between, I, I, I try to make a minimum of 10. Uh, and I've made probably as many as I can make as many as 25 if I don't have too many other things to do. I do not make them in batches. I make one banjo at a time. Uh, I will make up a bunch of parts because it's hard to make the rims. The rim, the rims are all uh, resawed lumber and then, then it's planed. And then the plies are, are, I make it, make them from two quarter inch plies. So then they are soaked and bent and rolled into a circle then they have to be dry fitted and then dried and then cooked and then glued and, and laminated. So it takes a while to make rims. So when you get on a, on a rim building mission, you tend to make up a bunch of rims so you can just pull from them because it takes so much time to make one. I, I really think that people don't realize how many steps go into making a really great playable banjo. There's a lot well, to it. <laughs> There's a lot more time in it than you might think. And I don't, I, a lot of people will use rasps and grinders and sanders and things like that on their, their necks to carve them. And I just don't, I actually cut, I make cuts. So I'm either cutting with a knife, cutting with a draw knife, cutting with a spoke shave, cutting with a carving knife, or um, uh, I might use what they call a microplane, which is a file type implement that has tiny little micro blades on it. So they're cutting the wood rather than ripping it out. And I just, for some reason, I just feel that it, aesthetically it makes a, a nicer instrument to know that it's all been cut and not sanded or ground away, or it, it's someone has treated it with respect the whole way. You know, it's like, I'm trying to, in some way, I feel like I'm respecting the wood if I'm cutting it and slicing it or scraping it, even with a scraper, you're taking off fine sheets just very thin sheets of wood, you know, micro millimeters, <laughs> you know, and, and a lot of people wouldn't agree with that, but you know, that's okay. That's my process. What did making things mean to your family when you were a kid? Well, a lot of times it meant that we had things, you know, my dad didn't earn a whole lot of money. So we lived simply, we raised a great majority of our food. You know, we planted a big garden every year. All, you know, you'd raise 18 or 20 bushels of, of Irish potatoes and 
then, you know, you'd probably have some sweet taters along the way. And we always had green beans and sweet corn and mama would can corn on the cob in half gallon jars and she would cut corn off and and can quarts of corn and you'd have, you know, 75 or 100 quarts of green beans that were canned every year and you were eating fresh out of the garden the whole time, you know, so we bought very little at the grocery store. It was such a treat to get Chef Boyardee box complete spaghetti dinner. I mean, it, it was like that was actually a joyous time. Mama, can we get some of that spaghetti, you know, and that was the spaghetti you had at home because we, we just didn't, we didn't have any of that processed food. We ate out of the garden all the time. And now people would love to be able to eat out of the garden all the time. And most people can't. And I feel very fortunate to be able to, to raise, to still raise as much food as I do, but that's, that's what we did. So, so a lot of times if we needed, if we needed a cart, we built a cart. You know, if, if we needed a bin, we built a bin. If you needed a, a whatever, you know, some kind of implement for the garden, you, you made it. Many things that we had were thrown away by someone else and, and we repaired them. You know, you recycle. We were recycling, you know, metal cans, metal, metal bean cans, food cans always got used for something else. They were either collected water or they were used to spread spread granulated fertilizer or you collected seeds in them or you stored nails and screws in them or you put them over the top of a fence post to keep the post from rotting you know you you always you recycled as much as you could so that's making things is how we had things a lot of times this overflowed even into your musical life when you were getting going <clears throat> it um, did tell us the story about your dad making you your first banjo or maybe you made it together well I actually happen to have the banjo right here. My dad and I made this banjo from some, from some scrap wood that we had laying around the house. Now, we didn't, we didn't know anything about building instruments. I had ordered a guitar from Sears and Roebuck. And, you know, I did that real old time musician thing where you, you save up your money and you, you order out of the Sears Roebuck catalog because I thought that's what you were supposed to do. That was the story I'd heard all my life. So I ordered that first guitar from Sears Roebuck and it was a, just a terrible guitar. It was, it was just absolutely horrible. So I already had that guitar and my dad figured that I would be better off having frets or the little metal bars on the, the banjo here. You see, figured I'd be better off learning to play with those than learning fretless. So what he did is we took this one inch board which is actually three quarters of an inch thick a one inch board planed is three quarters and it was just an old scrap piece of pine board we had and he sawed out sort of the general shape of a banjo neck and then he laid it up next to that guitar and with a pencil he marked where the frets were on the guitar neck now accuracy was not necessarily you know, at play here. We, we just didn't know. We figured close was close enough. And my dad was pretty accurate about how he laid them out. He, he, he did really well uh, because it plays, it played kind of in tune when it was strung up. And so there was a music store in town when we went to this music store and they used to be able to buy lots of things at the music store that nobody carries now, but this, but they, or they carried pre-cut fret wire. And so for guitars, so we got some guitar fret wire and my dad took a hacksaw and sawed out the slots. And then we hammered and glued those frets in. 
we got this. It was an old Elton brand tailpiece that you could buy. My dad got this tailpiece and put it on there, and, and we bought a banjo bridge for tuning pegs. He took a piece of maple stove wood that we had laying out on the front porch. He carved out the five tuners that you needed with a pocket knife. So they were carved out of a stick of maple stove wood with a pocket knife, and we laid them up on the ledge behind the wood stove for a couple of weeks and let them dry. And then he finished them off and put them in there. So every once in a while, you'd break one. So daddy would have to make me a new tuner. But we did build this together. The top or the head is actually a piece of, I think it's three-eighths inch thick. It's either five-sixteenths or three-eighths inch thick plywood. And so is the back. We didn't understand sound hole technology too much in those days. So there are no holes in this banjo for the sound to come out of. So it sounds a lot like an electric guitar with no amplifier, which is really good if you live in a house with other people and you're trying to learn how to play an instrument. You can be as bad as you want and you're not gonna bother anybody else. But fortunately, I learned how to play on this banjo. I love actually seeing it because you've told me the story before. It's fun to see it in real Zoom life. <laughs> in Zoom um, life, yeah, you Zoom bet. Life. Zoom life is what we have a lot of times now. I know, I know. <laughs> How old were you when you guys made that banjo? I was 10. I was, I was 10 years old. Yeah. And you felt pretty supported by your dad when he was working on that for you and, and your feelings about wanting to play music and everything. I did. When I started playing music in the school system down here in Forsyth County, they offered a strings program, which was violin, viola, cello, and upright bass. They worked in coordination with the Winston-Salem Symphony Orchestra to get these instructors that went around to all the elementary schools and taught strings. So you actually had to sign on to do this. This was an extracurricular thing that you had as one of your classes, you know. And I was fascinated with music. I had first wanted to join the band. I first wanted to join the school band. And I, and I told my dad, I said, well, I believe I want to learn to play the flute. And my dad looked at me and said, boy, you ain't playing no flute. And I said, well, okay. Well, all right. Then they brought the strings program in. And I said, well, I think I want to learn to play the fiddle. And he said, well, you can learn to play the fiddle. He said, I'll get you one of them. So he got me this fiddle, and they started teaching us at school, you know. And I soon discovered that, said, well, being, being a Southern Appalachian kid, and growing up in a house where country and traditional music is really all we listened to, I didn't realize you could play any other kind of music on the fiddle except for country music. But I soon discovered that Dvorak's Slavonic dances and Bach and Beethoven were not what I had signed on for, you know. But it was a really important part of my music education. It taught me a lot. Uh, and it allowed me to, to have the skills to figure out other things you know, on the other musical instruments I was trying to learn, like the guitar and then the banjo, and gave me the, the ability to count and figure out some chords and, and understand melodies and steps and half steps a little bit. I just imagine 10-year-old you with your dad cutting on some wood, <laughs> and <laughs> it's a really supportive thing to do because sometimes adults are busy and doing other stuff, and I just really like that story. He was, he was very supportive of that. He loved the fact that I wanted to play music. I, was, I really was fascinated with the idea of playing music 
firstly, because it was, I mean, I love the idea of making music and the, what fun it is to make sounds. I mean, it was my video games because I, I was, you know, a couple of generations behind the video game, you know, being a normal part of life. So that was my video game. You'd start out and you'd try to learn a phrase and you'd miss it and you go, oh, I'll get it next time. So you try it again and then you try it again and then eventually you get it and then you get to move to the next level. It's like eventually you will defeat, you know, the the whatever and find the princess, the, the mushroom princess along the way. You know, you, you, you will pass those levels. And it was just fun to try and learn to do that. Making mistakes was actually fun. And, and a lot of people, I think, when they learn, when they try to learn to play music, they don't want to make mistakes. They don't think somehow that that is part of it. And that's one of the most fascinating parts, trying it and not being good at it the first time, but then trying again. And just the process of the actual learning of it was fun and fascinating. But the other thing was that I, I didn't have the best self-esteem growing up. I, I didn't think too much of myself. And... I saw the kind of respect that people gave musicians. Not only was it fun to learn to play music and to make the sounds, but the respect that people gave musicians was fascinating to me. It was like, oh man, if I could just learn to do this, people would be nicer to me. And ultimately that is true, but in many cases that is not true. But that just made me want to do things even more. When somebody would tell me I couldn't do it, that made me more adamant about the fact that I was going to do it or bust. Best way to get me to do something is tell me that I can't. <laughs> I've heard lots of stories of folks who said they had this big motivation to learn the instrument because their father or grandfather told them, don't you ever touch that instrument. Yep. Absolutely. And they definitely snuck in. They'd sneak it off the wall and get in trouble and do it again. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it, there's story after story of that, and I recently was listening to a podcast about uh, Doug Kershaw, Doug and Rodney, his brother, and how they weren't supposed to mess with the instruments, and then, you know, they were playing the instruments, and there uh, lots of the old-time guys and girls that I hung out with when I was growing up, the old folks, they would say, well, yeah, you know, my daddy told me not to never mess with it, and just as soon as he'd leave the house, I'd be in yonder, and I'd get it, and I'd start messing with it. You know, and that's how they learned to play because they were, they felt like they were doing something they shouldn't do. Yeah. It's way that's more what people want. Exciting yeah. that way. <laughs> that's right. People want to do what they're not supposed to. They won't do what they can do. They, they want to do what they're not supposed to. <laughs> well, and oftentimes it meant within the traditional music realm that uh, people were trying to figure it out by themselves and did not always have a teacher. That is true. And I have to say that that was largely the case in, in my situation. I didn't really have a teacher. My dad and mom enjoyed going to church, so we went to church a lot. I loved the music. I loved going to hear the music and, you know, had some friends and stuff in church. And I'd come home and I'd just want to play music. And so that meant that we, as church-going people, we didn't go out to music festivals and we didn't go around where there was frolicking and drinking and, and anything like that. So I lived a little bit of a sheltered life in a lot of respects. And some people would say, unfortunately, I grew out of that. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so there was nobody around right close when I first started learning that I could learn from. 
But I had a friend that I went to school with. His name was Kirk Sutphin. Kirk and I lived on the same road, and he was learning to play fiddle from his grandpa. Uh, he was three years younger than me, but we rode the same school bus. I was taking my fiddle to school for fiddle, you know, for strings class, and he was taking his fiddle to school for show and tell. And we struck up that great, you know, 10-year-old and, and 7-year-old conversation. Is that a fiddle? Yeah. What's your name? I'm Riley. I'm Kirk. Uh, is that a fiddle? Yeah. Want to play sometime? Yeah. And then we became friends. We got to spend a lot of time playing music, and it was through Kirk that I got to start visiting Tommy Gerald and Paul Brown uh, is a great banjo player. His wife, Terry McMurray, played music with us. She came to learn to play music from Tommy Gerald. So we all sort of became pals and started hanging out and going up to Tommy's a lot. You got to spend quite a bit of time with some folks that were considered source musicians and who are not with us anymore. And who would you say some of your biggest mentors were? Well, Tommy Gerald was one of those. Uh, he, he was, he was certainly a huge mentor of mine. I, it, going to visit Tommy was like visiting my own family. A lot of people would come from the North. They had the food hurdles and they had the, the, the Appalachian etiquette that they, they couldn't figure out. There are ways you're supposed to act when you go to somebody's house. You know, uh, there's a, there's a certain amount of appreciation you're supposed to show people and you're supposed to accept hospitality in a way that you may not be accustomed to. And you're, there, there are just ways that you that you do, you know. I mean, <laughs> it's just just the way it is. But we didn't have those hurdles to jump over going to visit Tommy because it was like visiting grandparents or visiting a great uncle or something. You know, you you would go in the house, you knew what the food was when it was presented to you. You knew it was going to be good. You knew when it was time to say goodbye and leave. You know, you knew how to do that and how long that was going to take. And you knew what to talk about. You knew things not to ask questions about, uh, or you knew the things to ask questions about. But mostly, being young boys, we just sat there and played music, you know, and listened to him talk. Got to spend a fair bit of time with Robert Sykes, who was a a fiddle player. He was he was a bit younger than Tommy, but he lived out the he lived out the same road as Tommy, just just a couple of miles down the road. Got to spend time with him. Some time with Benton Flippin and Dix Freeman. Dix Freeman was a banjo player uh, who lived over at Round Peak, and he was quite a character. He was humorous, and he was one of those wheeler dealers who, you know, bought and sold things. He had been a produce salesman all of his life and loved to sell and, and, and buy musical instruments, mostly banjos and fiddles. He had a house full of banjos and fiddles, you know. We got to spend a lot of time playing music with him. He was, he was a big mentor, D-I-X Freeman, Dix Freeman. Uh, and he is actually the father-in-law of another great Round Peak musician named Chester McMillan, and Nick McMillan is his grandson. So, so uh, another great old-time fiddle and banjo player from over in Round Peak. As a musician learning and watching, would you just see a little lick that they would do, or was it more about just play a whole bunch of tunes and spend that time and it? and you start to absorb it over time. Cause I know that, also it, when you teach, you're really great at playing it over and over and over and over. And that's partly because of how you learn. That's also how I learned just hearing it and hearing it. And then you hope that your fingers and hands start to do the thing. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, there's a certain amount that you already knew about the instrument. You knew enough about how to play 
that you knew you wanted to go and learn more. So seeking out somebody like Tommy was the place to go or, or Dix or some of those other players. You knew enough that you kind of knew what was sort of happening, but not in great detail. So to learn the detail, you might say to Tommy, can you show me that tune? Well, he would play it, but he would never break it down into now you take your index finger and put it on the first fret of the second string. Now slide to the third fret and brush and play your thumb string. It was never broken down that small. He would play the tune, but then if you ask him to play it again, he'd play it again because when he was growing up, that's how he learned to play. He might get to hear a tune twice and have to remember the tune and figure out how to play it because there wasn't YouTube and there wasn't Amazing Slowdowner and there weren't CDs or flash drives or tablature. Yeah, I don't work from tablature typically in my classes. I really only work from tablature in a beginning class. You and I did a class together at John C. Campbell a while back, and that was the class that made me decide that it was time to start using tablature for a beginning class. Because I, I start also realized that there's so much that you're trying to remember as an absolute beginner that any little bit of help that you can get along the way, if it, especially if it's visual uh, and you can see where you're supposed to put your fingers and don't have to remember that right away while you're trying to remember how to play a basic rhythm and what and what finger to use on the left hand and what string. So if you don't have all that to remember, it's a big help. But going and visiting those old guys, like I said, you just you heard it over and over and over. And we would sit and we would play tunes. They We would be invited into the jam session, you know, and you just sit and you play tunes and you learn as you go and you just absorb. And, and when you're young and you're really, as we like to say, eat up with it, you know, and we were we were totally eat up with it, which meant that all we thought and dreamed about all day, every day was just playing music. And when you're 10 to like 18 years old, you know, there's a span there where you don't really have too awful much that you got to do other than your schoolwork. You've got your chores, but other than that, music is all we really had to do. And so that's what we did. We spent our time and as much time a day as we could spend playing. We never really practiced because we weren't, we didn't see it as, as we were learning these specific things. We were learning a style of music. So I, I even now I tell my students, don't practice, play, go and play the banjo, because that's how you develop those skills. And that's how you learn those skills. Your practicing is hidden in your playing, because if you're playing, you're practicing. But that's what we did. And that's how we learned. We learned just by doing it over and over and over again for as, as long as we could, could do it and as often as we could do it, sometimes yeah. two or three days a week. You'd be heading, heading, making that little 30, 35 minute drive up there to Mount Airy and hanging out with Tommy. <laughs> well, and it was folded into your friendship too. You know, it wasn't using somebody for something. It was a genuine, right. a genuine wanting to be there on the side of that, both parties. <laughs> that is correct. When you go and you really get into learning the music and you start those visits, you become part of the community. You become part of their family in a lot of ways. Because I certainly felt like Tommy Gerald was my family. And the way he treated me, I know that I felt like family to him. He was he was happy to have me there. And that's powerful from an intergenerational point of view. They were older than you and you were there to learn with them and be there and be in a safe space for that. And yeah, they were um, often 60 or 70 years older than me. Right. And they weren't saying, oh, you can't learn that. 
That's right. They were saying, well, come in here. Let's make some music. Tommy Gerald once, Kirk and I were sitting there playing, and he started telling this story about, uh, well, we were still in school, and he was saying, now, boys, y'all need to finish school. He says, because I quit just about the time I was at the seventh grade. He said, we just started doing fractions. And he said, you know, I never did learn how to do fractions. And that was one of the things he regretted, never learning to do fractions in terms of the way that, that they're done, you know, in a math class. Of course, you know, he, he knew what fractions were and how to figure half of something or a quarter of something, but he never did learn how to, how to work it out on paper. And that's what he regretted. So he was, he was a proponent of education in school and stay in school and learn, learn what you can learn. And that says a lot that, that goes to, to so many other facets of one's life. You know, you, you have the opportunity and you're presented with the opportunity to learn something, take advantage of that if you can. That's one of the reasons John C. Campbell Folk School is such a great institution is it's, it's right there in the mountains of North Carolina. And there are instructors that will teach you to do any kind of folk art that you want to learn from music to wool dyeing to how to paint or weave baskets or make quilts or build guitars, build banjos, you know, make brooms, just whatever you can think of. There's somebody that'll teach you how to do that at a class eventually throughout the year. So when you're offered the opportunity to learn to do something, man, take advantage of it if you can. One thing we've talked about just through the years of being buddies, how people from Appalachia are stereotyped. And I know that it's happened to you. And <laughs> what do you think about all that? Well, <laughs> I have, uh, I have been the subject of being stereotyped many times in my life. Well, I typically wear overalls, as you know, that's, that's my normal outfit. I mean, I, I buy my overalls at the hardware store in Walkertown, North Carolina, and we call them clothes. They're not a, it's not a costume. People say, oh, you, you have your costume on. No, those are my clothes. I, I'm wearing shorts and a t-shirt today under this shirt, but <laughs> I mean, I, you know, typically I wear my overalls, but I wasn't going out. So I didn't put my overalls on, you see. And so since I wear overalls and I usually wear a ball cap and I dip snuff and I've got a beard and I talk with whatever accent this happens to be, Blue Ridge foothills, you know, North Carolina, Western Piedmont. I, I've, I've got a little bit of a mix going on, but I talk with this accent and a lot of people only ever hear this as Southern and they hear it as being uneducated. When someone treats me as if I'm a hillbilly or some bucolic hick, as insulting as it can seem, when you know you're in that position and people think that you're not very smart, you can turn the tables. And often it teaches them to not assume that because someone looks or acts a certain way that they are a certain way. Yeah. Or to assume you've never traveled or that you don't speak other languages or that you don't have a vocabulary or all kinds of things. Absolutely. Um, I think I told you this story. There was a, I, I was involved in a program once at a, at a college and they were the modern, the dance department, contemporary dance was doing, they had made some dances up that went along with three murder ballads that actually happened in the state of North Carolina. And the, the choreographer came over to me and my job was to sing these ballads. I was to play the banjo. I was dressed in my overalls, playing the banjo, singing these murder ballads in their traditional form. And then the dancers would come out and perform 
a modern contemporary or, or contemporary dance that fit those murder ballads. They acted out these ballads in dance. Well, this guy, after the first rehearsal, he comes over to me and says, Riley, have you ever seen contemporary dance before? I mean, I've traveled with dancers all over the world and worked with all different kinds of dancers. And, and you know, so my first thought was, it, it made me mad. It made me angry. But then I thought, nope, nope, wait a minute. Let's, let's use this. So I looked at him and said, well, yeah, I've seen it before. And, you know, we, we finally got running water and electricity over at the house here not long ago, too. And he immediately figured out that his question was not nice. Yeah, we, we worked fine together after that. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know, but yeah. What have been, would you say, one of your biggest struggles on your creative path or in sticking to it? Well, the biggest struggles are one of the things is learning more material for me. I went through this period of not wanting, I mean, I would go out and I would play music or I would perform music or I would go and jam with folks, but I really wasn't learning anything new. For some reason, the past five or 10 years has just turned, you know, 180 degrees in the opposite direction. I'm constantly learning new material and new songs and learning new things and going back through old hymnals and finding songs that I had often seen and, and heard melodies to. And I, I just recently found a hymnal from 1902 that's called the Primitive Baptist Hymn and Tune Book. I didn't know I had it and I was cleaning off a shelf the other day and found it and it actually has melodies in it and it's written in the seven shape system like Christian harmony would be, which is the popular form of shape note singing in Western North Carolina. And there's some songs that I had learned from people, but then went to check the melodies and the melodies that they have written out are the same melodies that I had learned from these old folks, you know, and, it's, and that's fascinating when you can go and say, well, I know this tune. And then you start looking at the actual dots and you're going, wow, that is the tune they sing. You know, so that's, that's a lot of fun. So that was a thing for a while. And part of it is because I know myself and I know that once I start down a path that I'm going to, I'm going to totally, you know, get immersed in it and possibly drown in it. Uh, <laughs> so I think that that might have been one of the reasons I was not so into sitting down to learn things. And also a lot of times when you, you want to learn things, you want to already know how to do it. That was a big hurdle, but overcoming that has, you know, has made everything exciting again because yeah. that learning switch has been flipped on and I don't know what I did to turn it on. Something just happened and bam, it's on again. So yeah, I always like to think that humans, all humans, just love having their hands in things because well, it feels I, good. I, I was in a craft store not too long ago and found a pack of scrap leather. And I thought, oh, man, I used to, I could do some things with this. So then I kind of got into figuring out how to saddle stitch leather and cut leather and make little pouches and make straps and Covers for all my carving tools. I, I made covers for every one of my chisels. So they all lay down in the drawer and I, so I can sharpen them, put them in the cover and put them in the drawer. And, they, you know, they don't get nicked by rattling around in the drawer, find, trying to find a tool or whatever. 
you know. Well, I like what you're saying, though. You happen upon something. You happen upon a book on your shelf or you happen upon the leather. And then that leads to another thing, to another thing that just makes you feel nice. And like you're learning something new and you're taking charge of taking care of your tools. And that's all that creative stuff that's not connected to money. It's connected to like making that sweet life for yourself, you know. Well, well you know what? A lot of times people don't have the confidence that they'll be able to do something. And everything that you do, as you learn it and you, you become more and more successful at your endeavor, and I don't mean financially because I'm not making and selling leather goods. I'm doing things because it's fun. And the, every time you do something and you're successful at it, your confidence level goes up to be able to try something else. And it makes me feel better. It's like, I've, it's like oh man, oh, I could do that. Well, let me see if I can do that. Oh, well, I did pretty well at that. Let's see if, I wonder if I could, let me twist some wire and see if I can make pretty shapes with it. You know, so it's just all these, these little things. I want to know how to make soap. Okay, get some oil and some lye. Let's go at it. Figure it out. Every little thing you're successful at makes you successful at the next thing because you have the confidence of being, of having, having succeeded at the last thing you tried. So let's see if we can do this. And then you know, it just builds and builds and builds. Yeah, it's like positive reinforcement. Well, it was okay last time. It, maybe it's going to be okay again. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> you played so many different kinds of gigs, so many different people. You play for dancers. You do solo, like lots and lots of stuff. There's some movies in there, you know. What have been, would you say, out of all those, there's a lot, that some of your most favorite gigs or moments have been because you play traditional music? One of them was I, I got to play at the Coliseum in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, the, which would be my local Coliseum. I was on a tour after doing music for the film Cold Mountain. And the tour had Allison Krauss and uh, Dan Tominski, all of uh, Union Station, and had the Cox family and Norman and Nancy Blake and Ralph Stanley and, uh, oh gosh, uh, Sierra and Cody Hull were on the tour and the whites and gosh who else we just just loads and loads of musicians there were tons of us out there the nashville bluegrass band and so we were touring and i got to play at the coliseum in the town that's nearest where i live well when i was in school i used to carry my banjo to school uh, as a security blanket you know i any 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 free time I had at school, I would be, I'd have the banjo out playing. I didn't care if people listened or not. I was just trying to play. I was trying to learn to play and was having fun. Teenagers can often be cruel. So they would, at the time, it's before cell phones, so to make lights, people used cigarette lighters. So they would all light their lighters and they'd go, play free bird, man, play stairway to heaven, man. You know, and it made me feel really good, especially after seeing many of those people in the audience uh, that had made fun of me in school, knowing that they'd paid quite a lot of money to be at that concert and that I was getting to perform at that concert. It, it felt like I had come, not that revenge or vengeance was the thing, but it made me feel like, yeah, see, you were wrong. You were wrong to treat me like that because here's what I did with it. And had they not treated me like that, I might not have been on that tour. I might not have had the tenacious kind of stick to spirit to 
to keep digging and keep doing it. And luck had a lot to do with it, to being involved uh, with that project. You know, it, it didn't hurt that I had eaten my vegetables, as it were, and learned how to play the music and learned to be a traditional musician because that's why I was on that tour. That's why I did that film is because I played old time music. That was a fun gig. But then I got to I got to tour with Willie Nelson a bit. Got the call to come and play old time Clawhammer banjo on a Willie Nelson CD because it was pretty much all acoustic. And it was not Willie's normal family band. So there wasn't a drummer. There wasn't it was just mandolin and banjo and guitar and there was a steel guitar and there was upright bass and fiddle and Willie. So we we had a pretty good time making that that recording. But one of the best things that I did was I made a mistake on stage with Willie Nelson during the taping of a TV show. It was it was the actual taping. The show was going on. The audience was there. Everything was fine. And we had just done a song that was in three, four time. I had three, four stuck in my head. Boom, ching, ching, boom, ching, ching. The next tune was uh, Hank Williams' House of Gold. And I was supposed to kick it off in four, four time. I kicked it off in three, four time. And Willie looked at me with that confused turned head look, you know, and he heard what was going on, immediately kicked it up into four, four time. And it worked out fine. And at the end, I went to him and said, Willie, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I, I was stuck in three, four. And I said, I, I'm just, I'm so embarrassed. And I'm, I'm so sorry that I messed that up. And he looked at me and he said, Riley, he said, don't sweat the small stuff. He said, you'll get it next time. And a lot of band leaders would have fired you, you know, for making such a horrible mistake. But he said, no, nah, don't worry about it. You'll be fine. It's just a mistake. It's just music, you know? Yeah. And that, that was a fun experience. And one of the big lessons that I had musically was, you know, you, if you worry too much, and that's not to say don't worry about getting things right, but if you worry too much, it's detrimental to your cause. It makes it harder to learn things if you don't give yourself a little leeway to make some mistakes here and there. And so that's, that's a couple of the great experiences I've had because I played old-time music. And, you know, less specifically, meeting so many people, getting to travel around the world. I never would have left Walkertown, North Carolina. I never would have seen anything had it not been for the banjo and the music taking me to these places. The banjo and the music took me to Australia and to Germany and to England and to France and Belgium and Sweden and Norway and Finland and Denmark and all these different places. That I just never would have had the opportunity to go and see any of it. And you get to see that the world is different than what you're told it is. What you hear about the world on TV is not the way the world really is when you go see it in person. We're not the center of the universe after all. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> there's a lot more than Walkertown, North Carolina out there. And people seem to get along, be getting along just fine. They're living from day to day and trying to make a living and raise their families and do the best they can, just like everybody here is. Sometimes I tell banjo students, you know, because I met my husband in France because of the banjo. Like if I wasn't, didn't play banjo, none of that would have happened, that whole domino effect. I just warn them. I start with a warning. <laughs> Beware. Your life may change. 
Well, if you touch I this met, instrument. <laughs> absolutely. Because of old time music, I met my wife. I would not have my wife had it not been for old time music because I was on tour in England and I met her at a show. Didn't know, didn't get to know her then, didn't find out her name, but saw her and was immediately drawn to her. And then I saw her the next summer at a festival in Ireland and I immediately went and sat down next to her and found out what her name was and how I could get back in touch with her. <laughs> you know? And uh, that was in 2004 and we've been together ever since. Riley, I don't think I have any other friend who I, so anyone that I could say that we're both from North Carolina and met people from across the pond to marry just because of our banjos. <laughs> That's right. funny. That's absolutely, yeah, absolutely right. It took me to the place where she was and I was supposed to be there. I do want to mention that, that people should check you out and all that stuff. And you've like recorded some CDs and things. And one, the most recent was 2019, right? Little Black Trains are coming. Little Black Trains are coming is what it's called. <laughs> yeah. I love it. People need to go find it. You have a website. People can find you that way too. And on Instagram, you've been doing, are you still doing that? coffee and a tune. Well, I was doing a little series out on my front porch called uh, hanging out on the porch. That's all I'm just hanging out on the porch, but I was always hanging out with a banjo and a, a little cup of coffee. And I have hummingbird feeders. My wife and I have hummingbird feeders on the front porch and I would go and I'd hang out and I'd play a, a tune and have just a little gentle chat. I'm not doing that right now. I started, I was doing that in at the beginning of the pandemic just to give people a little something, you know, a little gentle, fun something to hopefully brighten up the day. I, I might start up again. You never know. I've gotten a lot of good feedback from that. Well, it's sweet. I, it's like a mini visit, you know. It, it is like a little mini visit, just a, a five minute visit with Riley on his front porch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's filling up your inspiration cup these days? Oh, gosh. Well, it's like I was saying a while ago, I've started going back through some of these books that I've collected over the years that I could never really use to learn anything from. Like I have a bunch of Clawhammer banjo books that people have written through the years. I've been going back through these things and looking at some of the lessons that people might have offered in some of these Clawhammer banjo books, and it's helping me figure out things or reminding me of ways to relate information that I might not necessarily be very good at coming off the top of my head, it gives me ways to communicate with students. It's a big help. And so going through these things and then every once in a while, you'll see a tune in one of these books and you go, man, I haven't thought of that tune in a long time. So then I'll have to go away and learn the tune. I probably am not going to learn it from the tablature, but I'll go away and find a recorded version of it to learn, you know, or to relearn, to re-remind yourself. Do you have any last words of encouragement for anybody out there just trying to make and do and create and learn in the middle of all of their adult duties and life? You just have to do it. Do it as often as you can. It's really hard to get started, but after you get started, you always have a good time. But you just have to do it. And you have to know that through that little bit of pain is going to come great joy. You may not ever get it exactly that way, but your way is just as good. Your yeah. way is just different. There's this whole school of thought in old time music, you know, where 
you have to play a tune exactly the way you learned it or exactly the way another person plays it or you're not playing it correctly. Well, I assure you that the person you learned it from is not playing it exactly the way the person they learned it from played it. And it doesn't matter whether you're learning from a young person nowadays or whether you're back in the day learning from a person in their 80s or 90s. That person in their 80s or 90s had, you know, sometimes 70 years of processing that went into playing that tune. And I'll guarantee you it changed over the course of their life and them playing the tune. So they're playing it the way they play it with their self-expression. And I think everybody should should do that. I mean, musically, play it the way you would play it. Play it as close as you can and as closely as you want to to the way you learned it. But play it the way you would play it. It's like, just give yourself a chance. Give yourself a chance. Absolutely. I love knowing you. I enjoy our conversation so much. And I appreciate you being here. And and you're just always supportive anytime I talk to you. And I really appreciate that. Well, let me say, Annie Fane, I have been listening to Fane House Radio. And I have enjoyed every episode I've heard so far. And they've all been inspirational. You know, every person that you have had on your podcast so far has just had so many good things to say. Everybody needs to hear other people's perspective on what it's taken them to reach wherever they are. We all need support. And a lot of times, if you can hear that somebody else has gone through a a similar process to you, you go, oh, now, okay, yeah. Oh, so I'm not weird. They had that same difficulty, you know, or a similar difficulty. So your, your podcast is great and you're doing a great job at it. And I can't wait for the next episode. If you would like to be in touch or have someone you would love to hear interviewed, email me at afainhouse at gmail.com. I also hope that you're inspired to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. New episodes come out every other Tuesday. If you would like to watch these interviews in video form and are curious about the happenings of my little business called Fane House, where I paint and make art prints and gift cards from my watercolor originals, I'd love for you to sign up for my email list. When you do, you get a coupon for 10% off a one-time purchase in my Etsy shop and first dibs on my annual limited edition calendar printing. You will also be granted access to our free private Facebook group, which is the one spot you can watch these interviews. If this all sounds fun to you, go to your web browser and type bit.ly backslash Fainhouse to sign up. That's with a capital F and a capital H in Fainhouse. This is not a weekly newsletter, but rather a list of folks who are interested in hearing from me time to time. You can find this link, as well as links for each person I interview, in the show notes of each episode. I'm Annie Fain Barillon. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll leave you with a quote for the day. Practice any art, no matter how well or badly, is a way to make your own soul grow. So do it. Kurt Vonnegut.